Wow, amen, huh? It is finished. That's fantastic. Great to have you folks here this morning. And a um, couple things just before we start um, looking into the Word. Uh, this is quite a week. Um, Jacob Antolik was in a pretty serious car accident. We've had that out in the prayer uh, reminder, the email this week. He is still in the hospital in Danville and has had, uh, I think, three surgeries to this point, cleaning out the uh, talk about road rash. I mean, I that's the most descriptive way I can describe it, but it, it's the most serious road rash you could ever have. And uh, so be praying for him, concerned about infection, and probably, John told me yesterday, another one, maybe two surgeries this week on his arm. There's a uh, He's got a long road ahead of him in uh, recovery, but uh, be praying for him and the family. Remember Marjorie Grew, we got word that uh, she, we can visit now, and uh, that information is also in the email, and if you're interested in that, take note. You can call Beth and line up a time. There's only so many hours a day that visitors can see Marge, so if you'd like to do that, Check out the email or give us a call here at the office. We can get you plugged in. And then we got word Friday morning that Don Patton passed away. He is with Jesus in heaven today. Uh, Nancy called uh, Friday morning. Some of you remember Don worked across the street at CSU, was uh, director of development for a number of years, attended here, he and his wife, Nancy, and uh, there will be a service at North Park Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, this coming Saturday. That's all that we know. We don't have a time yet. She hasn't let us know that. But we will make that um, time available to you and any other information that uh, she gets along the way. So that was the week, um, quite a week, opportunities. Uh, some of you who live here in town may know there was a 14-year-old young man killed in an ATV accident, and uh, I was part of the death notification to that on Monday evening, and um, folks, there are opportunities to, uh, to share the gospel every day, all over the place, if we're looking and ready for God to use us, and there are people that are hurting that are struggling, some who know Jesus and some who don't. And I trust that uh, we'll be praying in that regard for God to open doors and to use us who know the truth of Jesus Christ. Let me pray as we begin this morning. Father, thank you that it is finished. Your son's work on the cross is finished. And because of that, we know that those who believe can know forgiveness of sin and a right standing before you and eternal life and abundant life now on this earth, oh God. I want to pray for Jacob. I pray for continued healing for his mom and dad and family, for God, don't allow infection there in his arm and For Marge, thank you for the progress she's making, and I pray for Ben and Beth and the family, and continue to strengthen Marge. I know the desire to have her back home, and 
So uh, provide healing, Lord. I pray for Nancy Patton and their family. Lord, is done, is in heaven with you now. God, we are rejoicing in his salvation, and yet, God, we know that Nancy grieves, and yet not without hope. So God, minister to her today. And God, direct us as we look to your word. Don't let us just let it go in one ear and out the other. Especially on a very familiar passage of scripture today. Stir our hearts with your truth. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, as you read through the Bible, um, and I sure hope that you are on a regular basis, however you choose to do that, that you are in the Word on a regular basis. And as you do that, you'll come across stories. And by I mean stories, sometimes we talk about the stories in the Bible. And sometimes people don't like that term because they say, well, that makes it sound like it's, it's not real or it's just a story. It's just fiction. And and folks, uh, we talk about the stories of George Washington crossing the Delaware. Was that real? Was that history? Yes. So when we talk about the stories that are in the Word of God, we're talking about truth that's there, real stuff. And we come across those stories, uh, the accounts of God's dealing with people. And sometimes those stories, if, if you don't remember or if you're not familiar and you're reading that story, it may surprise you or even shock you. And uh, after reading those stories, you might wonder why in the world was God so harsh? Why was he so severe in his punishment or treatment of people in that situation? It may even be, God, I don't like this. I just don't understand. How could, how could you do that? And, and we, we think of stories um, both Old and New Testament, back in Numbers chapter 15, a man who is stoned for picking up a few sticks on the Sabbath day. And uh, wow, that's hard to believe. Achan and his family are stoned because he kept a portion of the spoils from a, a victory that the nation of Israel had experienced. And God said, don't take any of that. And yet they did and God took his life. He disobeyed. Uzzah, seemingly completely innocent, a servant of God who was struck dead by the Lord for reaching out and touching the Ark of the Covenant while attempting to keep it from falling off a cart that was being pulled by some oxen when David was moving the Ark to Jerusalem and he reached out to steady it. We would think a very good thing and, it, and he touched it and God took his life. So how could God do that? Because God had given some very clear directions about how it was to be moved. Or David, David's sin in numbering the people of the nation of Israel. 70,000 people died in a plague that God brought on some of the nation of Israel because of David's pride and what he had done. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 lied to the Holy Spirit, and God struck them both dead. Husband and wife gone because they lied to the Holy Spirit about how much money 
they had given to the church as they sold some property. Paul tells us that God judged believers in the church at Corinth. We're studying 1 Corinthians. We have been now since the beginning of the year. And uh, God took the lives of believers in the church at Corinth because of how they participated in the Lord's Supper. Just two weeks ago, right here, we celebrated the Lord's Supper. We had communion. We had the bread and the cup, and we participated together as a body of believers in that. And when they were doing that in Corinth, the church at Corinth, uh, many, Paul tells us, became weak and sick And a number even died because they partook in an unworthy manner. We're going to get more to that next week. And as you read this this morning, as we look at this, do you think it was a little harsh for God to take the life of a follower of Jesus because they participated in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? Well, because we know that's true, we need to pay attention. Would you open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 17 to 26. The text goes on through to the end of chapter 11 to verse 34. If you don't have a Bible and would like to follow along with us, if you don't scroll down on your phone or your tablet or have a Bible of your underneath the chair in front of you, there should be a Bible and uh, feel free to pick that up and use it, page 799 in that Bible. If you need a Bible, uh, you're welcome to take that as our gift to you. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 17 to 26. Now, we're not going to argue about the severity of God's punishment today. We're not going to look at or question why he does what he does, the way he does it. But I will say that until we understand the seriousness of sin we will never understand the severity of God's punishment for sin let me say that again until we understand the seriousness of sin we will never understand the severity of God's punishment for sin and that's the critical part That's why people don't understand how God could send anyone to hell. How in the world is God a God of love? Why would he send anybody to hell? Because of sin. That's why. And that's what the Bible talks about over and over and over again. And we must never forget that sin is devastating. Sin is destructive, it is demoralizing, it is damaging, it is disturbing, and we could go on and on and on with adjectives about the terribleness of sin, that the only way it is so devastating, so destructive, so serious, that the only way that God could deal with sin was to send His one and only Son, Jesus, to die. On the cross, in our place, your place, my place, for our sins. That's the only way. God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God did that, his own son to the cross. 
is the only means of taking care of our sin. And the Lord's Supper is all about remembering Christ's death until he comes again. Because one day Jesus is coming again, huh? That's an amazing thing. And boy, we're to remember what Jesus did on the cross for us until he comes back to take those who know him to heaven with him at what we call the rapture. So back to 1 Corinthians. To this point in Paul's letter, we're, we're in chapter 11. We've covered 10 chapters. And we've seen the first four chapters, some pretty serious problems in the Corinthian church. The first four chapters talked about unity and the, actually the disunity that existed there in that church in Corinth. In chapter 5, incest. In chapter 6, lawsuits and sexual immorality. In chapter 7, divorce. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, idolatry and the abuse, God's people abusing their Christian liberty, their freedom, their rights. And Paul talked about that. We've been through that. Yet it was not until chapter 11, where we are today, that we find a sin so serious that it resulted in God's discipline in the church. After all we've talked about, what we see today, what we'll talk about today in chapter 11, God, it was so serious that God took believers home to heaven. He took their lives. And many were weak and sick, Paul tells us. God's discipline was intense and extensive, and as a result, many followers, many became weak and sick, and a number died. So Paul's account in 1 Corinthians 11, what we're going to look at today is a warning to the church to deal with their sin. The Corinthians, he's saying you need to deal with your sin. We're going to identify that. And I believe that the directives that Paul shares with the church in Corinth some 2,000 years ago also apply to us. We talked about what is cultural last week and what is not. These apply to us because we'll see the truths are timeless. What Jesus did on the cross for our sin is true forever. And as we look at that, it is important that we understand. I believe it would be to our benefit if we understand that God took the lives of believers because of the way they partook of the Lord's Supper, and it was wrong, and it's still true for us today, it would do us well to understand what it, was, what it is so as not to commit the same sin as the church in Corinth did. So this morning, I want you to know two things. The Corinthians' sin, what was it, and what we can do to avoid it. So first of all, prob the problem, here it is, the sin. Chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 17 Look at the verse. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Paul says when he's talking about directives, he's given some directions about what's going on in the church. And in these directives, he says, I have no praise for you. Now, remember last week, we started chapter 11, and we looked at verse 2, and just before he let them have it, about what was going on in their worship service with the lack of head coverings for the women. And, and we said, okay, that is a cultural thing, but what did it mean? Paul said, I praise you. He says, I want you to know that. 
But here in verse 17, he says, I have no praise for you. I can't find anything worth talking about. I can't find any way, reason to lift you up and encourage you because that's not the, your meetings do more harm than good. Wow. That's pretty blunt, huh? He comes right out. He doesn't pull any punches. Other translations will say, your coming together is not for the better, but for the worse. It would have been better than nobody showed up on Sunday morning than what happened when they did. And he goes on, verse 18. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church... There are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Now, that sounds like, well, I don't know. Well, where did he get his information? Well, we saw back when we began chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 11, that he got from the household of Chloe. They contacted Paul. They let him know what was going on. We went through the first six chapters with that information. Then we got to chapter 7 and verse 1, and Paul starts responding to the letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul. We don't have any record of that letter other than Paul's referring to it. Hey, now about the things that you wrote to me. Let me talk to you. And he begins his list of things. Here we are in chapter 11. And this is one of those things that they had written to him about as well that he probably also heard from the house of Chloe. And he says, there's divisions. And I know that. There's enough truth to that that I believe it. In fact, when he talks about those whom God disciplined, we know it's true because God disciplined people for the very thing that Paul had, talked, had heard about. Verse 19, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Now, this is one of those uh, difficult verses, folks, <laughs> like we talked about last week. The, the one verse that I said, you know what, I'm not even going to attempt, I don't know what that one means. I think I know what this one means. I might think differently next week, which, by the way, I have to, I said something wrong again last week. I already told you the one thing that I said, but the other, do you remember if you were here last week when I said that um, women have an extra rib? Yeah, I, I got into a discussion about that afterwards. Somebody said, that's just not true. Well, I, I, I went after uh, a nurse who does know, and I, at least I thought, and, and did, did. And guess what? That's true. I, I don't know if I'd call it an old wives' tale. I'm like, wait a minute. The, the one who told me, I said, wait a minute, i got to talk to somebody else. Wait a minute, you don't believe me? <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, no, I don't mean that. It's just that it was so convinced that that was true, right? Because Adam took a rib from, or God took a rib from Adam's side, and, and that's how he made woman, right? So that's why women have extra ribs. But they don't. And I'm like, how could that be? I've, been, I've heard that all my life. Well, I guess it just, and it wasn't even on the internet yet. <laughs> so anyway, um, if you heard that and thought, is that true? I even Googled it again. <laughs> and it does say that many people believe that, but it's just not true. Well, I did feel better at that point. All right. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, where was I? Goodness. We were talking. All right, there have to be differences among you to show who have God's approval. That's a difficult verse. And, and I think there's a couple directions to go. The idea of what does it mean that there have to be differences among you. Um, 
to show which of you have God's approval. Well, there were divisions. And the differences among them is that some were part of that, some weren't. Uh, The divisions were between the haves and the have-nots, between the rich and the poor, between the slave and the free, because the slave didn't have uh, anything at that point. And um, these divisions were centered around the topic, the issue of the Lord's Supper. Um, Paul says, I have no praise for you. And because this was about the Lord's Supper, that made it even more serious. In fact, look back to chapter 10, because in chapter 10, and I will get back to the, uh, there have to be differences among you. Chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, I think I have it here. It is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ. It is not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. We're talking about communion. We're talking about the Lord's Supper. Verse 17, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all share the one loaf. The one loaf represents the one body. And we we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But the idea, this was about communion, about the Lord's Supper and the unity that when we as believers, those who know Jesus, gather together and remember Christ's death, we are one. All of us, no matter where we are in life, no matter how much money we have or don't have, no matter where our, what our position in life is, economically or socially or athletically or academically or politically, we as believers are one. But Paul says there's divisions. And it is the Lord's Supper That is part of the celebrating the unity that we who know Jesus gather around. We recognize our unity together. But in the middle of all this division and disunity, he says, we got a problem. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Those who have God's approval, those who have passed the test. He's saying there have to be differences. It sounds like he's saying there have to be those who aren't right, who are involved in sin, and there have to be those who are right, who are not involved in sin. And that probably is a a good explanation, and I think there's, there's those who have passed the test who stand out, who are made known over time. There's a pattern of behavior of those who have gained the approval of God by the way they live their lives. Not talking necessarily about salvation, but about the way they live out their salvation. Um, I think it's a pattern of behavior. When we talk about those who have who have gained approval, those who have God's approval. That's not just if they blow it once, they've blown it, and therefore they no longer have God's approval. Or if they're not living under God's approval, it wasn't one thing that they did. They didn't gossip about somebody, and therefore God says you're not approved. No, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about those who were part of the church who were acting in a way that was contrary to the unity of the body of Christ. And I think when Paul says, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Some 
believers were treating other believers, the way they were doing that indicated they had a heart problem. And over time, if that heart problem continued, if it was a pattern of life, there was good reason to call into question whether or not they even knew Jesus. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34 Jesus was talking about the Pharisees and he said, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? And here's why Jesus said that to them. Because for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. What we talk about regularly here at Heritage is that what's in your heart will show itself in your behavior. What is inside of you, in your heart, will show itself externally. We cannot hide what's in our heart. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, you can't, who are evil, you can't say anything good because what's in your heart will come out of your mouth. What your heart is full of will show itself. And folks, that's true of us in every area of life. And if Jesus hasn't changed our hearts, Oh, we might have a couple of good things here and there. But over time, what's going to come out is not anything that will indicate we know Jesus in any way, shape, or form. But when you know Jesus, he changes our hearts. And when our hearts are changed, he makes them right. He totally transforms us from the inside out. And that must and will show itself externally. And I think that's what That's what Paul is saying. Those who have God's approval are those who treated others within the church in a godly way, in a way like Jesus would have, even though there was disagreement, even though there was division. You see, the way we disagree with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ indicates a lot about what's in our hearts. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. So you see, it is often in the midst of disagreement, of difficult times, of division and disunity, times of COVID, when God reveals or shows the true character of an individual's heart. The way we respond to one another, folks, it's all over the place. The way God's people have responded to one another as it relates to COVID has been pathetic. And if we happen to go through a round two, I've talked with a number of guys, pastors and others who know God's word. What I've heard resonating is, boy, I sure hope the church does a better time responding this time than we did the first time. Because the way churches have polarized, the Bible doesn't talk about polarization for believers. There's all kinds of things that we don't like about COVID, but that doesn't need to divide us. And there are those who want to blame the governor or the president or the mayor or the health officials or the CDC or the whoever for all the division and disunity Folks, if we who know Jesus aren't unified, guess what? We have nobody to blame but ourselves. Because when we blame, you know who we're, we know what we're saying? 
We're saying, well, the devil made me do it. And the Bible doesn't talk about that. So it's critical that we understand that what's inside will show itself. We need to make sure that our hearts are every bit as much in tune with the things of God and his word as they ought to be. Verse 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. See, they were gathered together to do that. They were like in their auditorium now. Of course, they didn't have auditoriums. I got to straighten that up. Be careful. I, oh, I've almost made another one. I, they were in houses. They didn't have auditoriums like we have at this point in the first century. They had homed house churches. And, and the bigger homes were able to accommodate larger numbers of God's people. So the churches met in larger homes. Well, what do you think would be true of somebody who had a larger home? They were wealthier than others who didn't, right? And so as they gathered together, so that's what we're talking about. When they gathered together in those homes on a Sunday to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to celebrate what Jesus had did for them, and they gathered together, what we find is that Paul says it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, even though that's why they were there. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Those were other believers. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. What is going on here? They were gathered together in the homes. God's people, believers to worship the Lord. And in some, time, in some cases, the, the Lord's Supper. This is the only place you'll find in the New Testament where the Lord's Supper, the phrase is used. We talk about it as the Lord's Supper. A lot of times we talk about it as communion. But this is the one place where it is used in the New Testament. And so he says, he says that's not what's happening. Could you go back to verse 20 for me, Katie, please? So when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. Well, wait a minute, what was it then? Well, here's what would happen. The church would gather, and when they were going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, have the bread in the cup, what, what would happen is many times they would all have a meal. The, they were called the love feast to, to celebrate and remember the love of God for his people and sending Jesus Christ. But they would eat together where they were one as a body of believers. And that was showing God's love to one another as the church, the body of Christ. And, and as they would gather together one of two ways. And, and there's different positions on this. It really doesn't matter which way it was. But some said they would eat first. And what was happening here is uh, the, the wealthy people that were there would be eating first because they maybe didn't have to work that day. You see, in the Roman uh, culture at this point in time, there were no day off, days off. And the slaves, the poor, those who didn't have much, who had to work seven days a week for a living, they would try to get there on Sunday. It wasn't like us. We're all off Sunday, or many of us are off Sunday, and, and, and we gather together as we're able to. But, but at this point, the wealthy, they could show up whenever they wanted because they were wealthy. The poor, they probably had to work, and so they may not be able to get there as soon. And, and some would feel that the, the wealthy then would start eating and eat everything before the poor got there. And that's why Paul says there that there are many that are drunk, those who were eating ahead of time, 
and others who are hungry. I think probably more realistic was that those terms, because one of the translations that you might read says that they didn't wait for everybody. They started eating, and I think what it was is right here, for, <clears throat> for when you are eating, some go ahead with your own private suppers. Everybody would bring their own food, kind of like the church potluck, right? And uh, those that were poorer or slaves, some of them didn't have anything to bring. They were living day to day. That's all they had, so they would come. I tell you what, folks, for those who didn't have anything, those community, those church-wide meals together as a body of believers would have been an amazing encouragement to them. Just imagine they didn't have food, regularly good food to eat, and they didn't, they didn't have the ability to always gather together with God's people like the wealthier did. And as they gathered together, they probably couldn't wait. And yet we're told that many of them went hungry because those who had the food kept it to themselves, their own private suppers. He's saying it's not the Lord's supper you eat. You go ahead with your own private supper. And that's why then Paul says, one is hungry and another gets drunk. Now, this may also have been, because as we read later, as we talk, and sometimes when we read the text, when we observe the Lord's Supper together here on a Sunday morning, between the bread and the cup, when you read down into the text, and we'll get there in just a minute, we find that after they took the bread, then after the supper, they did the same thing and took the cup. So there are some who believe that the supper was in between the bread and the cup. The meal together was between the bread and the cup. And they would say, but that's how the Lord did the last Passover meal or what we call the last supper. Look to Luke chapter, I think it's 22. And we'll find out that as Jesus for the last time celebrated the Passover with his disciples, but for the first time celebrated the Lord's Supper because it was later on than that night that he would go to the cross or be betrayed and the next day go to the cross. We, we, we know that as he did that, they would, they would partake of a meal together, probably did the bread first, ate the meal, and then the cup. Whether that's how they did it, we don't do it that way. We don't have a meal. But that probably is how the church at Corinth did it. And so then verse 22. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? If you're just coming to eat your food and, and, and yuck it up with everybody, have a great time, you rich people. Why don't you just stay home? Because what you're doing is more harm than good. It's worse, not the better. And that's why he then says, do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Do you despise means to have a thought process in your head that you think you're better than everybody else, that you're looking down on. That's the word despise there. Or do you humili humiliate, he says. The idea of humiliating is intentionally embarrassing people, looking down, putting down. Humiliation to others is, is complete selfishness. That's what Paul's talking about. It's not just division and disunity. It's extreme self-indulgence. It also involves indifference. 
The difference between indifference and indulgence. Indifference means I don't even think about others. I really don't care about others. Doesn't matter to me. You see, the wealthy people were used to having servants wait on them hand and foot. So when they were meeting in somebody's house, the wealthier people who gathered, they got to go in the real good areas. And and everybody else would be out in the atrium of that home. But the servants would be standing around watching the wealthy eat, and the wealthy were used to that. They were completely indifferent to the rest of the body of Christ, the church. And the indulgence is just getting all you want as much as you can, and drunkenness is what came as a result. Humiliating for God's people who were there to celebrate together and to love on one another and to be provided for by those who were wealthy to celebrate the Lord's Supper was humiliating. That's what Paul said. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Why? How in the world could that happen? God's people. You see, in that culture, there was regular contempt of the wealthy for the poor. But in the church culture, it was supposed to be different. You know why? Because Jesus went to the cross to make us one. And that's why Paul then goes into the text In verse 23, you see, we saw, first of all, the problem of the Lord's Supper. Now, here's the purpose. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that we don't miss the point, so that the church at Corinth didn't miss the point, so that they recognized their need to be one together. He points to the cross, for I receive from the Lord. What's he talking about? How that Jesus gave his life on the cross. And Jesus, that last supper, that night with the disciples, how he took them and how he said, this bread is my body, this cup is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget what I'm about to do. Remember what Jesus did on the cross. Verse 26, why? Because whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Folks, remember, because of the death of Jesus on the cross, for those of us who believe, he has made us one. We looked at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 last week, how that because of Christ's work on the cross, when we believe there's no more slave or free, there was no more rich or poor, there was no more Jew or Gentile, we are all equal, we are all one in Christ, huh? We're all, they said, you know, you've probably heard this before, but the ground in the foot of, at the foot of the cross is level. You've ever heard a, a, an athletic 
you watch the game, baseball, basketball, football, you name it, right? And sometimes they say, well, the, the, the playing field's not level today because this team is just so much better than the other team. Means they have one has a disadvantage over the other. Listen, folks, at the cross, the foot of the cross, it's all level. There's no one that has advantage over the other. Why? Because Jesus died for all of us who believe. That's what he's talking about. Every time we meet around the Lord's table, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, the gospel is visualized. It is proclaimed. Every time you take the bread and drink the cup, you are showing that you believe Jesus died on the cross for you, that you were a sinner, and the only way that your sin could be forgiven, the only way my sin could be forgiven was because of what Jesus did on the cross. And when we believe that, we are declared right before God and forgiven. Acts chapter 13 Paul said this, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. That's why we do, that's why we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, to remember that our sin has been forgiven because we believe what Jesus did. On the cross. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. When we share together in the Lord's table, we are proclaiming the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are proclaiming that Jesus died in our place for our sins. Huh? It's not just some ritual, some routine, some traditional thing we do on the first Sunday of every month. It's a meaningful remembrance of the work of Christ on the cross. So what does all that mean? Well, I've got three thoughts just as we wrap it up here. First of all, don't participate in the Lord's Supper if you don't know him. Now, this text that I'm preaching today and, and we'll finish up next week is a text that we typically read when we're doing the Lord's Supper, right? We just did it a couple of weeks ago. And sometimes I, I fear that we do that on a monthly basis usually and, and that we've heard it before. It's kind of like the Christmas story or kind of like Easter or Good Friday. We, we hear it every year. We hear it regularly. And yeah, 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 yeah. Let's just take the cup and do the bread. And I'm not saying that anybody really feels that way or intentionally comes with that expectation. But sometimes it just is routine and we miss it. But that's why we're to do it over and over again until Jesus comes again. But for those of you, for those I, 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 who don't know Jesus, if you don't know him, next time you're in a service, whether it's here or somebody else, somewhere else, and, and we have the bread in the cup, don't 
Don't participate because you don't know Jesus and it really doesn't mean anything. It doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't bestow grace in your life. Secondly, we who know Jesus are one body. When we gather together to observe the Lord's Supper and and I thought today maybe this will be really good because we're going to talk about the communion text the lord's supper text but we're not going to observe so that we can focus on what the text says and we need to recognize that it says we who know jesus are one body when we gather together to take the bread and the and the cup we are one we are celebrating the oneness the equality the sameness the forgiveness that we have in jesus we are one We're celebrating one with each other. But we're also celebrating that we are one with Christ because he's forgiven our sin. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5, Paul said this, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions, our sins made us, made us, us, Alive together with Christ because it's been by grace we're saved. And then thirdly, if necessary, repent of your sin. If you've been guilty of of humiliating those who have less than you, of despising by in your mind thinking down on people who don't have what you have, whether it's economically, whether it's the smarts, whether it's the popularity, whatever the social status might be, if we think we're better, James chapter 2, read James chapter 2, and he talks a lot about that. But if we're struggling with that, if, if necessary, if we are those who look down on others, who, who are indifferent to the needs of those around us, We need to repent. And the verses that John read for us earlier during our worship time and music, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, here it is, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out before us. Throw off anything, everything that hinders our relationship with one another, that hinders our relationship with God, that is sin in our life. Repent, get rid of it, deal with it. And my question as we close would be simply, In light of what you've just heard from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what do you need to do before the next time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together? Because the major issue, and we'll finish it up next week, had to do with the way God's people were treating one another at the communion service. And we're going to see that's why God judged the believers It wasn't because they didn't have their devotions that morning. 
It wasn't because they didn't put enough in the offering plate. It wasn't because they hadn't told anybody about Jesus for the last week. It wasn't because they hadn't spent time in prayer two or three days that week. It was because they didn't treat one another, God's people, with love and respect and selflessness, the selflessness that we celebrate that Jesus gave his life for us on the cross. What will you do to make that right before the next time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together? Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his death on the cross for us. Thank you that you provided the forgiveness of sin, the only means of forgiving our sin, the only way that we could be right with you, the only way that we could be guaranteed life after death with you in heaven. Oh God, thank you. And if there are any here today who do not know Jesus, Father, I pray that you'd open their hearts as they've seen, as they've heard the gospel, that God loved this world, all of us, so much and hated sin so much that he sent his son Jesus to die so we could be forgiven and made right with you. Oh God, help us to live our lives in a way that people see Jesus in us, in all that we do. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.